Before we get started on the season two finale, the end of Master and Apprentice, I just have a few announcements. We've made it. We're finally crossing the finish line of Master and Apprentice, and after starting recording for season two back in October, and wrapping up seven months later after hours of note-taking and brilliant discussions, it's really hard to believe. I just want to thank each and every one of you all for embarking on this journey with me and for listening in through each chapter. I hope you've liked the book as much as I have, and that you've taken something away from it that you might have missed if you'd already read it. And speaking of thanks, I want to thank our new patron, Connor, for choosing to support the show, as well as a special thanks to the rest of our patrons over at patreon.com slash outerrimreads who make this show possible. I can't overstate how much it means to me for you all to make it a priority to support this podcast or to support independent creators beyond this show. And as always, I do want to give a huge shout out to our producer-level patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. If anyone would like to join our family and get access to our patron Discord server, episode bloopers, a bonus monthly show, exclusive stickers, and more, you can do so for $3 or more at patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And before I let you all in on our coverage for Season 3, let's talk about the road between seasons. Like I did after Season 1, we will be having another inter-season break between now and the start of Season 3. You can expect four inter-season break episodes over the next couple of months, starting in three weeks on June 8th. These break episodes will be a change of pace, so not the typical chapter-by-chapter -chapter format, but something different and fun as we prepare for Season 3. Aside from two episodes each in June and July, there will be no new episodes in August. And this will give me a chance to take a bit of a break, but also to get ahead on recording for Season 3. So again, there will be four inter-season break episodes starting on June 8th through the end of July. I guess I can't put it off any longer. So, speaking of Season 3, starting on September 7th, we will be covering the first novel in the new High Republic era, Light of the Jedi by Charles Soule. I'm super excited to dive into this new era of Star Wars literature. I've heard amazing things from friends and fans alike, and I can't wait to read these books for myself. For anyone who might not be familiar with the High Republic, it takes place 200 years before the Phantom Menace, representing a sort of golden age, when the Republic and the Jedi were at their heights. I've got a bunch of new guests lined up to discuss Light of the Jedi, and I hope you all are just as excited as I am to embark on that journey starting on September 7th. Now without further ado, let's get into the Season 2 Finale, Episode 36 of Outer Rim reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 36, the season two finale of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will be wrapping up our coverage of Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice, covering chapters 37, 38, and the epilogue, and I'm joined by one of my friends and returning guest of the show, 
Keith Berenger. Keith, this is a monumental occasion for you to be joining me. How are you doing? Hello there, Internet. It's me again. <laughs> you thought you were done with me. You shall never be rid of me, at least not till after this episode's over. <laughs> and then I will deflect your Sith lightning back at you, and the galaxy will no longer have to worry about somehow Keith is returned again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm glad to have you back on uh, <laughs> for, for the finale, for the season two finale. This has been quite the ride through Master and Apprentice. Um, <laughs> how do you feel for, for being here? I guess, I, I guess you're closer to the, around the middle or kind of the beginning of the book when you first came on in the season, but how does it feel to be on for the end for, for the climactic chapters and, and really to close it all up? You know, how are you feeling? I loved these last couple chapters. I was on for 11, 12 and 13. And that was, okay, so pretty early. that was a lot of talking, a lot of exposition, interesting stuff. Yes. but. In chapter 37, especially, there's a lot that happens kind of all at once. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I told you the last time I was on, I don't really read a whole lot. Um, I don't usually have enough time for it, but getting to be on here gave me a reason to go through this book, and I'm really glad that I did. Yeah. It's gotten really great, and, and there is a lot that happens in this chapter, especially, um, but really... You know, I think the book comes to a fantastic close. Uh, you know, it's it's got the action, it's got the tension, and it's also got you know the 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 moments that'll hit you in the feels. Um, but quite the journey it's been from back in you know chapters eleven through eleven through thirteen. I think that was when they were arriving to Pijal, and now you get the chapters when they eventually leave. Uh, so you know, we, we're coming full circle here. Yep. And it's good because the ending, you know, you've got the interesting stuff in 37 and then you've got 38 in the epilogue where you've got enough of a come down, but not so much that it feels like, okay, we're dragging this on. Yeah, it really, I think, I think when I was rereading it for this episode for my notes, it felt as if I was reading like the ending of a movie. It felt really, you know, kind of like with the cutaways and the and the farewells and goodbyes. It, it felt like uh, it felt like a movie. It felt like a movie. So not not once did I feel like like you said that it was dragging or whatnot. I think everything fell into place perfectly as it should at the end of this. I do have you know some some questions about how things. Uh, you know about how things wrap up, but we'll, but we'll get to that when we when we cross that bridge. But you know, there's a lot to talk about today. Uh, I could give my summary for chapter 37, and we can really dive into a, a hectic chapter. Let's do it. Aboard the leverage, Pax sneaks into the labor area, determined to rescue Rahara. He finds her working on an assembly line, where Rahara insists to him that she won't leave without the rest of the slaves. Eager to get back at Zerka, they plot a slave uprising. As the revolt begins, Obi-Wan realizes the leverage is locking down their access bays. Knowing he must act quickly in order to preserve their escape route, the Padawan jumps into the facet and uses it to destroy the surrounding security droids. Suddenly, against Obi-Wan's will, the facet's autopilot engages and the Jedi finds himself unable to stop the ship flying through the Leverage's large corridors. On the Righteous, Queen Fanery's crew realizes she is determined to destroy the Zerka ship, even at the cost of innocent lives, 
and they mutiny against her. With Obi-Wan's help, Qui-Gon legally frees the slaves from Zerka's clutches. One of my first you know, impressions and takeaways from this chapter was how much it cuts back and forth between characters, between settings and scenes, you know, really as if this is an action-packed, climactic moment of a movie where the dramatic cutaways and all that. What were your thoughts on chapter 37 as a whole before we dive into the finer points of it? Well, yeah, there's a a cinematic technique where you use a lot of really quick short edits to jump between shots that makes the action feel like it's a lot faster than it actually is. And that's what I was getting throughout this chapter is, you know, just a lot of really short sections jumping, you know, Pax and Rahara, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon and Rail, Vanry, just jumping back and forth between them all really quick. And that made it feel a lot more fast paced. Yeah, because really when it comes down to it, it's, you know, maybe not for the span of like, you know, maybe half an hour. Like everything that happens in this chapter does not take a long time to happen, but it feels like it's a lot going on because of the quick cuts between characters and all that. And it it does feel fast paced. You know, it gets your blood pumping. Uh, It's just, it's really uh, an enjoyable chapter from from Claudia uh, where we start off inside the leverage. So so Pax has snuck into the labor area of the ship. He's left Obi-Wan uh, on the Merricks to k- kind of keep the uh, keep the car running for when he and Rahara come back to escape if everything goes according to plan. Obi-Wan and- Kenobi, getaway driver. <laughs> he, he's probably tacked that on his resume. Uh- <laughs> he's up to the task and uh, you know, uh, we we see how skilled he is. As a a pilot, uh, you know, maybe not for the first intended reasons that they thought, you know, to, to simply fly away from the ship, but we really get some some Obi-Wan flying uh, expertly or as best he can in this chapter. So getaway driver is one of his is one of his talents. <laughs> but um, Pax is noticing that the corridors are kind of enormous. Uh, it felt kind of odd that Claudia specified they're three meters high by five meters wide and, you know, twisting and turning and that turns out to be important for later. Um, <laughs> I'm smirking. I'm smirking right now. Um, but he he notes and thinks that the design aesthetic uh, is quote intestinal, which is <laughs> just so gross to read that. But it just we're we're really getting a vivid image of what these corridors look like, and and we'll need that for for later. Yeah, and it actually just brought a really kind of disturbing image to mind in that Zerka is essentially consuming these uh, slave workers and just passing them through its system. Yeah, the Zerka ship, yes. Wow. (laughs) Uh, That's that's a really keen uh, observation. I did not think, uh, I didn't liken it to, to, to that image of kind of just really just devouring and digesting you know very much like in a in a system of of the body like you know taking these slaves in and and you know kind of processing them that way that's that's a really um kind of horrifying connection i don't know if i like it but it's great at the same time you know effective by claudia i have a very skewed view of the world i think you've hit the nail on the head with with that that's a really that's a really cool connection but also horrifying um you're welcome uh, 
<laughs> Thank you. I like this this note. Pax sees a mouse droid <laughs> rolling by, quote, singing to itself. And, you know, because we've seen that in the movies where they're they're making some kind of noise. We don't really know what, what it is, but I, I like that little description that it's singing to itself. And I just think, like, they're just jamming to their Spotify playlist <laughs> as they're just rolling through the corridors. Well, and now that Star Wars is owned by Disney, you could have the little mouse droids going along, you know, singing to themselves whistle while you work. Oh my gosh. Where's the musical with the mouse droids now? <laughs> this needs to happen. <laughs> hey, mouse droids are very underappreciated. In you know, one of the Star Wars X-Wing books, one of the characters managed to assemble an army of mouse droids that almost took down a super star destroyer. Oh my god, I think either you brought that up in the last episode or that was brought up in the droid tournament episode when either Sam or Ethan was repping the mouse droids in the tournament and, and brought up that fact. That is uh, is ringing a bell. I'm getting a sense of deja vu right now. And that is just, it's incredible to think of just a billion <laughs> mouse droids taking down a superstar destroyer. <laughs> so we, we're cut back to the Corvette that Qui-Gon is on, and he's notified that the Righteous uh, Fanry ship is now targeting the Leverage instead of the Corvette. And we're left with the question here. Would Fanry take down the whole ship, regardless of any innocent life aboard or, or not, just to rid the system of Zerka? You know, Rail is telling Qui-Gon he is for sure that she would do that. But, you know, we, we know that Caddy or Katie, I don't know, however Fanry's handmaiden's name is pronounced, she freed herself from Zerka. She was a former slave, but then in the uprising in the Celestial Chalice, she freed herself from Zerka. And so we know that she has a connection to the slaves aboard the ship. You know, she was one of them. But now we're, we're left with the possibility that Fanry might not care for the slave lives aboard the Leverage and might take down the ship and it's kind of scary to think about that yeah i think fanry definitely would not hesitate to take down the leverage she's been playing this game for a while so she's not going to stop now to go a bit nerdy i know nerdy on a star wars podcast unheard of <laughs> Who would have but she seems to have gone to like the lawful evil side of things where she's been masterminding this where she thinks she is doing what is right by taking down Zerka, she's not going to stop. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good connection, you know, because she is convinced that she is in the right here. And it's not a bad thing to rid the system of Zerka. It's just now we have innocent lives in the equation. And if she's willing to take that step, if that's what it takes to get rid of the Zerka Corporation and the leverage. Uh, but we know that Sector Supervisor Cole is on there, so really, if she was to take a step to make sure that Zerka no longer has a foothold in the system, it would be to take down their flagship, and, and it's really, it's, it's scary to think if innocent lives might be sacrificed for that, but that is now on the table here. And we're cut back, again, you know, there's a lot of cuts in this chapter, it's very, very quick like that, to the labor area with Rahara. And, you know, she's working on the assembly line, you know, wondering if her life as a jewel thief had been a dream which is pretty sad, you know, that she's at the point where she's literally questioning her reality in the midst of the circumstances she's in. And, you know, she's telling herself that she'd have to choose to believe that it happened, that her being a jewel thief was real. Otherwise, she'd spend the rest of her life knowing that she'd only ever been a cog in the Zerka machine. And that really shows the toll it takes on someone's psyche and, and their mind on their identity when their Rahara is literally questioning if her experiences with Pax as a jewel thief 
or even real to begin with. I have heard there are certain like psychological precedents for that. It was something talked about in like a making for an episode of the show Outlander where a character gets raped. And during that experience, she has to convince herself that she is somewhere else so that she can deal with the trauma of it. Yeah. And so that is kind of what I get with Rahara here. She is convincing herself that, you know, everything she went through with Pax, that is real because that is the only way she can deal with the trauma of being back in the pits. Yeah. Uh, and it's really horrifying of a reality um you know where she's taking in her surroundings and there's a lot of like hot gas that could easily burn the, you know the slaves are working on certain machines and there's alarms that are so loud that she's thinking they might you know deafen them there's no way that they could maintain their hearing with that constant noise it's really terrible terrible circumstances for for anyone there did you ever see the film metropolis i have not uh it's i'm, a... I'm... <laughs> old black and white sci-fi film and in it there's a scene that shows like this futuristic uh factory scene where all the workers there are basically they have been at this for so long they are moving like machines just everything is one fluid mm. choreographed movement pull the switch turn the wheel pull the yeah. switch again just that's what i get with the pits here is everyone is just moving doing their task with mechanical precision because that is what they're forced into exactly it's really you know we're seeing that that this experience is you know we see it with rohara and it probably applies to everyone else that is kind of ridding them of you know their humanity and so really all that is left for them to do is to work on the assembly line is to you know become part of that rigid mechanical technical uh, movement of you know making you know working with the machines and uh, that's uh, it's a chilling a chilling reality to think of but uh thankfully pax does show up he calls out her name and, and is approaching her and you know so he is there to rescue her you know and and i think it's kind of funny that she says that you know she could have imagined life as a jewel thief but she could have never have dreamed up anyone like pax marifer which is both funny and romantic but um <laughs> but we get a huge moment from Pax here, and I'm just going to read this section from the text, you know, where Rahar is telling him, quote, You said you don't put your neck out for me and don't expect me to do it for you. That would be irrational. And Pax's expression gentle. So I said, but it turns out there are things that matter much more than rationality. Which is honestly the moment that we've been waiting for, like the final confirmation that he's accepted his human side over the rigid droid logic, kind of, kind of, you know, very contrasted against the image that you just gave of, of you know, a very choreographed mechanical flow of things in this room. He's like the fresh breath of air of humanity in that room, and it seems like he's finally rid himself of the chains of kind of that rigid past with with the droid upbringing and what a journey it's it's been for pax marifer and we finally get this moment yeah it's really interesting to see his arc throughout this book i mean usually you see a character arc like this takes several books to go through but you know he actually just takes one single book to get from being this obnoxious guy acting like a 3po unit to this actual caring person, though there's one moment where, you know, Pax can't help but be a little bit Pax, and 
say like, <laughs> this is all very risky, but I mean, that just means that what I'm doing here is that much more important. My saving you is that much bigger of a gesture because of how crazy this is. Exactly. You know, this is definitely not something he ever would have undertaken earlier in the book. You know, he's if it's if it's risking his life or Rahara's, he's not in. You know, <laughs> he did end up going on those adventures with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, but this is a massive step when he is actively choosing to, uh, <laughs> to to take these steps to save her, you know, even if it means putting them in danger. Uh, throughout this uh, whole adventure with the Jedi, he complained the entire way. Yep. <laughs> this is the first thing he's done without complaining. Yep. It's, you know, he's, you know, kind of no questions asked doing the risky things right now. It's really as much of a 180 as we would ever get, I think, uh, which is which is awesome to see. And, you know, we kind of get the icing on the cake when, you know, Rahar is saying, you know, no, if we're if we're leaving, I'm taking everyone else here with me. And Pax says, quote, you mean instead of sneaking out safely, we're going to leave a slave uprising? Excellent. Which is I just wrote in my notes literally, hell yeah. Like this is <laughs> this is just the, the cherry on top, the icing on the cake. And it kind of reminded me of uh, from Solo a Star Wars story, you know, L3 on Kessel. And and I don't know if I'm remem remembering this correctly or not, but they could have more or less escaped you know, uh, had a much smoother escape, but she chose to lead a revolution instead uh, as well, you know, instead of leaving the droids behind. I don't know if I'm correct or, or wrong in, in remembering that, but nonetheless, you've got to love this scene. Yeah, and just the way Pax has been described before as having kind of like the wild hair and everything, I just, I actually pictured him getting this wide-eyed look in his on his face and just having it a lot longer drawn out Excellent. <laughs> it's the mad scientist. <laughs> yep. Good, good. <laughs> Let the hate flow through you. Um, he's especially later in the chapter where he describes what they're doing as an orgy of destruction. <laughs> I'd written that down. I was, I was definitely going to touch on that. <laughs> what a what a phrase that was. <laughs> he's just he, he's totally become super cool in this chapter. <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> and we cut to Obi-Wan and the Merricks when he realizes what's happening. You know, there's sirens and alarms going off and, you know, he does hop into the facet. Everything is going according to plan, you know, when he's taken down these droids. But then, you know, after he takes out a few droids, he notices that the, uh, his kind of dashboard and the small fighter, the facet, says, quote, auto pursuit initiated on its console. And basically, the ship was targeting droid after droid, and he was no longer in control, or he was no longer able to stop the ship. He was able to steer it, but the autopilot, the auto pursuit was turned on somehow where it was just targeting droids and just kind of zooming ahead. And the best that he could do in that situation was steering it and, and avoid crashing. And this was pretty reminiscent of the moment in The Phantom Menace, I thought, when Anakin was in the N1 fighter and the autopilot engaged uh, in the space battle, and he was like, well, you know, just gonna, just gonna roll with it. Um, but Oh, please, you know Anakin knew perfectly well what he was doing there. <laughs> so who's oh, the I'm stuck in this ship. Oh, it's on autopilot taking me oh, up no. in the space battle. Oh, darn. <laughs> But regardless, Obi-Wan's ship is just flying through the inner doors from the access bay into the ship. And now he's steering through those corridors that were described to us, you know, twisting and turning with only a meter of space on either side of the small ship. 
And if this is, you know, Obi-Wan doesn't know what's happening. He's just steering for his life. If, if this isn't chaos, I don't know what is. I loved this scene and it actually sounded like a lot of fun. There was this ride from when I was younger. It was called a virtual reality coaster. I don't know if you'd ever heard of that. I don't think so. It's like you're in this little car, like a little two-seater car, and it's completely enclosed, but it's got a video ski, video screen playing a roller coaster in front of you. Interesting. And the car is mounted on like a gimbal arm that will move you around and like twist you and turn you and everything, depending upon what's on the screen. And that's what this made me think of. This is probably what Obi-Wan's doing. <laughs> this is yeah. all virtual reality. <laughs> Obi-Wan has basically found him stuff, himself stuck in a rail shooter right now. <laughs> just, plot twist, the the leverage is just an amusement park or an arcade. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we we get a cut away back to the labor area where Pax does, you know, all the slaves are just pretty much wrecking shit, just destroying machinery, just like... Just tearing everything apart, and Pax does call it, quote, the orgy of destruction, which is just which is such a phenomenal phrase. Um, but, you know, really, the, the I, kind of, I think the heart of this moment for me was when, you know, Rahara is, is telling Pax, you know, she's not sure if they're actually going to be able to escape. You know, really something maybe that Pax would have said earlier, you know, that he's not sure if this plan is going to work, you know, so, you know, why are we why are we doing this? But she thinks to herself, quote, if Pax could hope she would too. And I thought to myself, really, how the tables have turned and how far Pax has come when he is her symbol of hope. And I just love that moment where she is putting her hope in him and realizing that, you know, if, if he's hoping right now that this can work out for them, she's going to as well. Well, and then, of course, I have to be all Debbie Downer here and say, <laughs> you know, Rahar is in a really, really rough spot. She's thinking that this probably won't work, but she's got Pax here who believes they can get it out, get out, and so she's just going to hold on to whatever hope she can find. Uh, and that's that's accurate, though. You really, because she is. It has really been a situation devoid of hope for her when she has been in there just working away. So really, I think that's that's accurate. Where if, if this is the chance for her to be able to escape, you know, she's going to take it. She's going to put her hope wherever she can, as long as it means being able to escape. So I, I think you're right there. I definitely I definitely agree there. Aha, cynicism uh, wins. See, <laughs> one point to cynicism. <laughs> and, and we get a, a cutaway back to the Corvette with, with Qui-Gon, and, and they're finding out, you know, with their scanners on the leverages comms, that there is an uprising going on. And this kind of gives Qui-Gon hope because... You know, even though they're able to hold the Righteous in place with their tractor beam, they can't stop it from turning around to target the leverage. So so in Qui-Gon's mind, you know, he's thinking, wait, there's an uprising on this ship. Let's patch us through to the Queen and tell her, you know, that things are kind of taking a turn for the better on the leverage, that maybe there's going to be a way around the violence that Fanry may have in store here. And we get this <laughs> brilliant little cutaway with Qui-Gon's thoughts where he's, you know, telling them, you know, patch us into the righteous. And he's thinking, quote, I hope Obi-Wan's all right. 
and I'm just gonna read <laughs> it's like literally three lines of a cutaway to Obi-Wan I'm just gonna read it quote as the facet plunged through the twisted corridors at intense speed Obi-Wan had given up trying to come up with any coherent thoughts it made more sense just to yell ah! <laughs> it was just we just get a, an image just beautifully of the chaos <laughs> that Obi-Wan is experiencing right now. We're, we're kind of like, I hope he's doing all right. And then we just get that cut very much like a like a movie, I thought. Yeah. And you know, everyone goes on about how great a pilot Anakin was. Anakin never flew a starship through the halls of another spaceship. Right? <laughs> this is really, I remember when I first read this, when I was reading through the book for the first time, it didn't, I think I might have skipped over the fact uh, that, Cl that Claudia had given us the dimensions of the corridors, and I was wondering, how is he able to do this? This is incredible piloting. It was literally flying through a corridor of a ship. It is really, Obi-Wan does not get enough credit. I 100% agree with you there. And so we are taken to the Righteous's Bridge. We're in Fannery's point of view now, and the scene begins with, uh, I think, a weapons officer telling her, quote, four minutes to targeting range, and I thought, literally every famous last words of, like, every Death Star <laughs> operator ever. <laughs> it's like, there's a theme in Star Wars where it's this it always takes so long to target whatever they're trying to, and it's just, you know, it's just, I think there needs to be quicker targeting systems where it's not just like seven hours of targeting let's give them enough time to blow us up it's just it's kind of like how they say in any sort of crime movie a police officer should never say how much longer they have until retirement in yeah. star wars a gunnery officer should never say how long it is until targeting nope and then it just wills into existence that it just won't work <laughs> And Qui-Gon and Rail patch in to the Righteous Bridge, and they tell them to turn their sensors to Zerka's communications to see what's happening for themselves. And we get the first instance of Fanry's crew disobeying her when the comms officer does what Qui-Gon says without waiting for Fanry's order. And then we get kind of like the big moment uh, on the Righteous that we've been waiting for, where they do see that there is an uprising, and, and Katie becomes kind of ecstatic. You know, she tells Fanry that they can help the slaves— to which Fanry refuses, insisting they'll be showing no mercy to Zerka. And there it is, you know, un unfortunately, you know, she's sees for herself that Zerka could be defeated from within, could literally be kind of just eaten alive from, from within by the slave uprising, but that she's going ahead with firing on the ship anyway, and it shows the power has kind of gotten to her head, that it was never really about doing right by everyone wronged by Zerka, but by fulfilling kind of this vendetta that she has against them, which Katie points out, you know, too, as she turns her blaster on Fannery and they mutiny against her. But really, we see here what Fannery has become. Yeah, this is where she goes from lawful evil to chaotic evil, because now <laughs> it's no longer about doing this for what she views as the right thing. This is about doing it because it's what I want. Exactly. This has just now become, she knows what she wants. She's going to get it. She's going to do whatever it takes to get there. But thankfully, the crew steps in. You know, no one's obeying her orders now. Katie turns her blaster on her, and and there's there's a successful mutiny. You know, it was quick. Uh, and, and we kind of get a childlike moment from Fanbury when she realizes there's a blaster being trained on her and she admits that she's scared now because she's never had this happen before. And, you know, kind of 
reminded us that she is a child, but still it is definitely the right thing that the crew steps up when they realize that, you know, they're taking orders from someone who is too far gone down the dark path at this moment. Yeah, that was something I underlined as well is, you know, when you get that moment inside Fanry's head and she's like, having a blaster pointed at you is scary. It's like you realize, yeah. you know, here she is leading this revolution, but she's still just a young girl. Exactly. You know, I think 14 years old, as as we, I think, heard it earlier in the book, it's confirmed uh, in the next chapter, but 14 years old. And we and we realize that, yeah, she's in over her head and a, a young girl in the, in the midst of a what could easily turn into a violent or what actually, I guess, already in the Celestial Chalice was became violent um, revolution. But thankfully, Katie turns on her and, you know, we cut away to Qui-Gon and he sees what's happened uh, on kind of like the hollow screen and he is confident that situation is taken care of now. But he contacts Supervisor Cole aboard the Leverage and he basically reads the letter of the law to her saying that, you know, during an extreme political upheaval, any group imprisoned against their will is to be freed and those imprisoning them to be committing a crime under the Republic's law, which I thought was... It was. It sounded pretty convenient, but I'm here for it too. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not against it, but yeah, convenient, almost maybe contrived. Like, yeah. you know, there would have have to have, had to have been some sort of historic precedent for that to become republic law. And you know, how often did the republic encounter that sort of situation? Exactly. I got to go to the Jedi archives and find out. You know, because it it is it does seem oddly specific. <laughs> But it works here, so, you know, that's that's fine. Um, and uh, Qui-Gon says that a, a representative of the Republic, such as Obi-Wan, can decree the situation to be of, quote, extreme upheaval. Uh, to which Cole says that Qui-Gon is, quote, twisting the law to suit your own purposes. To which I say that is a, a hell of an ironic thing to say because, you know, coming from a person who was trying to write... Zerka into Pijal's future through the law for eternity based on like specific terminology kind of going under the radar which is just totally ironic for her to even throw that at him <laughs> yeah and since she seems to know so much about the law it seems interesting she would never have heard about this particular one yeah, that's that's true. You know, maybe she just never kind of like in the arrogance of her position, never thought that anything like this could possibly happen. You know, maybe that they had Fanry in their pocket and they wouldn't have to worry about that. Maybe she just, you know, in all her studies of the law, she happened to gloss over any of the ones that involved <laughs> freeing slaves like oh, that'll never happen. It'll never, yeah, I mean, she was so confident, you know, that the that they will always be property of Zerka. And, and now, you know, she gets her justice uh, as a starfighter suddenly crashes onto the bridge through the corridor uh, and a, a pale-faced Obi-Wan kind of comes out of the hatch. And <laughs> I'm just reading this. I'm just like, what? what is happening anymore? Like he was <laughs> able to somehow survive. It, it does seem very, again, kind of like, convenient but at the same time just really cool that he was able to survive steering through the hallway and then crash into the bridge you know there's like people are screaming and jumping out of the way as this small starfighter it's you know because it's a pretty big bridge but mm -hmm. it's just a it's a funny moment and uh <laughs> he, he made it there right on time to uh to kind of shut cole down obi-wan kenobi master of the jedi arts master of form three lightsaber combat 
Master of the Dramatic Entrance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He is, he is keeping that in theme. I don't know if, you know, I think this would have been better if when the hatch opens, he says, hello there. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't, you know, there's still a young one. He's terrified, just like pale face, scared out of his mind as to what the hell just happened. Uh, but it was just uh, like, like the, the chapter comes to a, to a close and really... A funny way, a dramatic way, and, and not in any way that I would have ever expected <laughs> in any story. Yeah, I think it might have spoiled the mood a little bit if, you know, Obi-Wan had fallen out of his cockpit and just kind of, like, vomited right there on the bridge. Which is, <laughs> I'm sure what he really wanted to do at that point. The last thing he would want to do is to kind of legally declare the situation to be of extreme political upheaval. He just wanted to find the nearest toilet to, <laughs> to, to, to <laughs> and that is that is how chapter 37 ends uh keith do you have any closing thoughts on everything that happened in this chapter you know from pax rescuing rahara to obi-wan you know kind of going on a roller coaster ride within the ship you know piloting uh the, on autopilot and then you know the mutiny against fanery do you have any closing thoughts on 37 you know I was trying to figure out, like, what the size difference would be between Qui-Gon's Corellian Corvette and Fanry's ship, the Righteous. Yeah. Because I know Corellian Corvettes are not big ships. I don't know, just seeing, like, the image of the two ships kind of playing tug-of-war, it just reminded me of my dogs, how I'll have this little English setter <laughs> pulling at something in the mouth of the great big German shepherd who's laying there paying her no mind. <laughs> that is an accurate connection parallel to to what's going on here i know that the righteous was smaller than the leverage but the corvette was smaller than the righteous so i i don't know the the dimensions there but i like likening them to the ships to, to doggos i think that's a perfect way to end 37 i can give my summary for chapter 38 and we can get into the last official chapter of master and apprentice punch it andrew in the shadow of the recent violence on Pijal, Fenri agrees to abdicate the throne to a distant relative. Although the new queen's reign is brief, she successfully opens the hyperspace corridor, abolishes both slavery and the monarchy on Pijal, and creates the new democratic assembly. Minister Orth is named governor of the planet and vows to Qui-Gon to terminate all contracts with Zerka. Qui-Gon pays his farewells to Pax and Rahara, and gives them a valuable gift as a thanks for all their help. The Jedi Master also bids goodbye to Rail, and they briefly share words about Rail's relationship with Fanery. Back on Coruscant, Qui-Gon officially rejects the Council's offer to join them, with his understanding of prophecies having taken on a new meaning. Qui-Gon resolves to instead take time to listen to the will of the Force. Meanwhile, Rail gets a call from an old friend. This is the, cha the chapter that wraps everything to a close, you know, aside from the epilogue, you know, when everything, yeah, when everything comes to a close. Did you have any thoughts, any general thoughts on chapter 38 before we kind of say our goodbyes? This is... For the most part, all a very satisfying conclusion to it, and it has me wondering, like, 
are there any more planned adventures for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan now that they've kind of reached a, you know, like in sync point in their relationship? Do we actually get to see more of them between now and Phantom Menace? I hope so, Keith. You know, we, we haven't gotten anything. I hope, I hope, I hope that Claudia revisits. Because, um, you know, as we'll find out, as we'll see, you know, I don't think that we find out what happens to to Fanry later, to, to Rail afterwards. We don't really get any canonical stories of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in depth between now and the and the Phantom Menace. It's all just, you know, unexplored territory, but I want more. I want more. But as of now, this is this is all we've got. This is all we've got. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal, Claudia Gray. <laughs> Shout out to my Firefly homies there. Uh, I am not one of your homies. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have a small scene on the leverage, you know, but one really that I could totally envision from a movie uh, as, as Qui-Gon is walking with his arm around Obi-Wan chatting about what just happened. And, you know, around them, the former slaves are being registered as refugees, which is great, but I just want to read their brief interaction. Um, you know, before we move to the rest of this chapter, the, the text reads, quote, Obi-Wan still appeared to be in shock. It was terrible, he said, his eyes staring fixedly ahead. I don't ever want to fly again, ever. Oh, come on now, Padawan. I hate flying. You're only shaken up, Qui-Gon said. That feeling will pass. No, it won't. We'll see. For the time being, we have enough to do on the ground on Pijal. So this is the moment, man, when we realize why Obi-Wan hates flying. <laughs> Yeah, he says flying is for droids because he literally had an AI flying part of the ship for him. Whoa, my... I didn't piece that bit of it together. <laughs> Mind blown, you're welcome. Oh my... What? That is perfect. That is... <laughs> I just totally derailed. I did not make that connection. That is incredible. Oh my god. Well, yeah, jeez. But steering is for people. Flying is for droids. Steering is for people, like Obi-Wan. He's, he steered correctly, I guess. But, this is true. Uh, but that was, it was great to see the moment that made him go from loving flying with a passion to now hating it. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> At least he still likes riding Varactyls. Yeah, you know, we get that scene where he's petting the Varactyl, you know, just saying his goodbye. We, we see the... You know, the his love for them still is intact and also confirmed again in Revenge of the Sith. So we, we have that at least. Yep. Racing of Ractals is not for droids yet. <laughs> <laughs> but we do get this kind of scene uh, where Qui-Gon meets with Governor Orth, uh, which, you know, I guess I, I can believe this happening. Uh, it's just weird to think, you know, I, I was convinced at one point that she was sus, um, you know, in kind of like the whodunit aspect of the story. But, you know, we do kind of get the exposition where, you know, we find out what happens with Pajal and the treaty and the corridor. And it's, you know, a, a good order of, of business that she's canceling contracts with Zerka. So things are, are taking a turn for the better. But we find out that Fanry is under house arrest for the next four years in a palace, which is not so bad. Uh, yeah, but, poor Fanry. Right? Living it up in the palace. So house arrest. Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? <laughs> and then after her house arrest, she gets sent away to college. 
right? To live it up and, and party there. We don't know where, uh, <laughs> but we're reminded that she's only 14 years old. Literally, I think Padme's age in A Phantom Menace get pretty much the opposite of what Padme stood for. And, and for as many parallels to The Phantom Menace as we've gotten in this book, this is definitely one of the starkest contrasts that we get. We see maybe what Padme could have been if she was not this pure, <laughs> amazing person, but we see, you know, how how Fanry kind of fell short of that, and, and we see kind of what the other path could look like. Yeah, I was going through this book again, preparing for this, and uh, I was thinking to myself, like, you know, Marvel's coming out with their what-if series, you know, what if things yeah. were a little different. I think this is kind of what, this is kind of a what-if Padme had taken a different path yeah that's yeah literally i mean if she if she chose kind of power instead of doing what was lawfully right i guess you know that's uh yeah i i want to see this now on screen but you know this is this is as good as we'll get right now but that's uh yeah i, I like that uh, connection to to that i'm excited to see that series uh eventually but qui-gon goes to say goodbye to Paxiter Hara, and he notices they have, quote, newly intimate body language, which is like, you know, what we wanted. Yay, they're together. They're like Facebook official. It's great. <laughs> and he gives them a Mustafar fire diamond as thank you. And and I'm wondering, like, is, is he just rolling in cash behind the scenes? Like, he dresses simple, but he just has, like, all these jewels and fire diamonds and all these gems like just chilling out in his quarters it was just <laughs> the last thing i would expect for him to pull out of his pocket you know he he's not one of these if you got it flaunt it sort of guys yeah yeah he's more like the pajali strategy of like kind of you know simple exterior but then in the interior of your pockets you got fire diamonds <laughs> And uh, we find out from his thoughts that it was given to him on Felucia, which Rail earlier in the book had referenced Qui-Gon kind of had a love affair there. And so we're really intrigued as to what happened because Qui-Gon does not elaborate any further. He thinks and he thinks to himself, quote, but he didn't need the diamond to preserve that within his heart. In the end, the memories were what mattered. And on one point, on, on one hand, I'm like, Claudia, give us this story now, please. I want to know what happened on Felucia. And then this is also nicely paired with his earlier quote when he told Obi-Wan, quote, in the end, memory is all we truly possess. And it's kind of a, a neat moment of, of full circle. Yeah, I'd mentioned uh, last time I was on the show how they seem to be taking bits and pieces of things from legends and bringing them back into the canon. And Qui-Gon having a love interest is actually one of the things from legends that they seem really? to be bringing back. He had a uh, romantic relationship with another Jedi named Tall. Oh my gosh. On Felucia? <laughs> I don't remember specifically where it was. I just know that they were Padawans together. They grew up together and eventually, you know, had a romantic relationship. I'm wondering if... I, I remember reading the Jedi Quest series back in the day. And I remember this Jedi. I just looked her up. Siri Tachi. I think that was a love interest of Obi-Wan's, I think. Yes. But it's, it, yeah, okay, so you know, you know, yeah, that, that is cool that they're here and there. You know, I know that all my Obi-Teen fans, um, <laughs> is that is that the ship name for Satine and Obi-Teen Obi fans? I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I remember reading that with Siri in Legends, and now, you know, I did not know that Qui-Gon had, at some point, a love interest in the Legends materials. So that's, that's cool that 
they're you know bringing small things in here and there the i i want to know more <laughs> you know small spoiler for you know clone wars and for you know obi-wan legends but both relationships end just as badly oh i'm, I'm gonna be crying in the epilogue why are you bringing out the tears now man <laughs> because i'm dead inside and i enjoy your pain isn't there a word for that? Isn't there like uh... Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude? Uh, Taking joy in other people's pain? You know, we're gonna call it that. We're gonna call it that. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, and, and he goes to say goodbye to Rail as well, and so he enters kind of Rail's office, and and you know he can't tell if Rail is uh, packing or not because everything is just all over the place as classic Rail. But you know when he enters, Rail quote stubbed out a death stick, which. Is... So some things never change with the rail. It was... <laughs> Had me wondering, what exactly is a death stick in, you know, Star Wars universe? This makes it sound like, you know, it's just a cigarette, but then you've got the guy trying to sell Obi-Wan death sticks in a seedy cantina, and it sounds like it's something more than just a cigarette, so... I don't know. <laughs> Listeners, if you know what uh what death sticks actually do if they're just like you know something you can casually smoke or if they actually have some kind of you know effect i don't know <laughs> but rail knows um <laughs> but uh you know he he concedes to qui-gon and kind of uh you know unexpectedly he thinks the council might have been right about love at least in, in his case and i've just got this quote uh that he says to qui-gon here he says quote about how love warps our judgment. I cared so damn much about that little girl, but the way I went about it convinced her I didn't care at all. That all of it was about Nim, and none of it was about her. Maybe someday she'll see it clearer. Maybe I will too. And again, he came from a good place with Fanry. You know, and just as there was constant miscommunication and misunderstanding between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in the book, there was the same thing between Rail and Fannery, as we found out. It's just that in one of these cases, it might have cost the relationship for the time being, because he's he's saying he doesn't know when he's going to go see her again. He doesn't know when they'll talk again, and it, their relationship might be splintered. Yeah, I, I really got to wonder just how much of a relationship they actually had, because it just seems Rail was so hung up on doing right by the ghost of Nim that he never actually realized what Fanry truly needed. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And, you know, it feels like in that sense, it was probably just one-sided and Fanry was just kind of playing him to suit her purposes, you know, kind of building her her moves, building her power, you know, on, on planet. And yeah, it's, yeah, really, like you said, he, he was kind of just fulfilling the the needs of like kind of like the ghost of Nimpiana rather than actually taking the time to understand where Fanry was out her at herself and it and you know we see how it ended up very tragically between them you know we see how much he genuinely does care for her but also just the kind of like the, the ghost of his past stood in the way between him actually forming a meaningful relationship with Fannery instead of just trying to atone for his past mistakes. But we are taken to the council chamber back on Coruscant, and Qui-Gon is explaining to the council how he believes that he was meant to interpret the vision, because originally in the vision he saw Fannery as the victim of the incident. And he's saying that if he had been up there, still as the Republic representative instead of Obi-Wan, 
that Fanery would have pretty much broken his lightsaber trying to replace the Kyber with the colon because she had seen Obi-Wan disassemble his lightsaber before the Grand Hunt. But in Qui-Gon's case, she probably wouldn't have known how to do that and he would have been defenseless against Darren and, and, and killed. And it's incredible how the Force worked in that way. And it's it's really easy to think that, oh, Qui-Gon might be clutching at straws here, saying like, oh, I was meant to misinterpret it clearly, but he does make sense too. It's, it's pretty incredible. This also brings up the interesting point of how unique each Jedi's lightsaber really is. Yeah. Like, every single one is tailored specifically to that Jedi. Like, I think I'd heard about one specifically where the activation mechanism for it wasn't on the hilt. It was actually, they would have to reach through the Force to activate the switch inside the lightsaber. Really? I want to find out whose that was. (laughs) That's a fair point, you know, that, that it is tailored to the individual and really something as simple as just finding the the kyber core and removing it is is that much more complex from lightsaber to lightsaber um which it's it's a nice little bit of lightsaber lore there but then on a personal note qui-gon now takes this whole experience on pijal as knowing prophecies are real not just something that you know he could believe may happen but knowing full well that they can most certainly happen because you know with the kyber that is not kyber you know that the time of the prophecy is at hand and so he's thinking about that that the time of the prophecy is now hand they had come into contact with the kyber that was not kyber and he's thinking to himself quote everything would change it might even be in qui-gon's lifetime in those days slaves could be freed peace could be won qui-gon knew that was less certain but he chose to believe do you have any thoughts on kind of that moment, that internal monologue that he's having there? I think Qui-Gon is realizing that with the prophecies, everything he sees, it is actually going to come true. And, you know, he needs, he's realizing he just needs to go with it. It's not going to change no matter what he does, but he knows that something is going to happen, and so he's just going to go with it as it happens. Yeah, that, that I think that ties into kind of his, his, his later point when he's thinking about seeing the future, you know, seeing these visions of the future. In, in line with that, in line of, you know, kind of seeing the future and, and, and going with it, you know, not trying to take the reins of it, he's thinking to himself, quote, the danger came in thinking that knowing the future became a form of control over it. Finally, Qui-Gon understood it was the exact opposite. Knowing the future meant surrendering to fate, surrendering to the ebb and flow of life. Only through that surrender could the Force be truly known. And I've said time time again on this show that I, I agree with that. I don't think that, you know, just because you see it inherently means that you're going down the dark path, going, you know, falling to the dark side. It's like you still have the agency and the choice of what to do with that knowledge. And and like you said, Qui-Gon is resolving here that he, he just needs to go with the will of the Force. He just needs to accept it and kind of humble himself before it. Well, that's the kind of guy that Qui-Gon is. He's a very humble guy, and so he knows it is not his place to change the will of the Force. That's the big difference between him and... Anakin, when he starts having yep. his visions and his hubris, he thinks that he can change the future. 
Exactly. We see kind of exactly what Qui-Gon could have been if he went about it the wrong way, which we have, you know, perfectly in front of us as as what Anakin did. You're, that's a, that's the perfect connection. I think that's the connection we're supposed to make. So, like, the Council isn't wrong entirely about, you know, knowing the future can lead to wanting to control it because that's exactly what Anakin did. But then we also have Qui-Gon's instance where he goes about it in a much smarter way where he's just kind of laying himself before it. That is, yep, that, <laughs> I think the hands down, that is the connection we are supposed to make. That is really good. The council is always so busy congratulating themselves on feeling right about everything that they don't actually see what they are missing from the picture. Yeah, and I think Qui-Gon and the way that he goes about it, and, you know, this kind of might tie into what he's thinking of the council um, that didn't influence his decision, but nonetheless what he thinks about them, you know, kind of from his own perspective, that, you know, we, we see what his stance on the matter can take, where he's just opening himself fully to the Force instead of kind of uh, sinking into any pride or hubris, and, and not that the Council is rampant with that, um, but we know that they kind of became grounded in their position on Coruscant. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll read the section where Qui-Gon is thinking about the Council, and, you know, he has some hot takes here that I'd love your thoughts on. Um, <laughs> he's thinking to himself, quote, Qui-Gon knew the Council to be wrong about many things. He felt they'd allow the Jedi Order to become a sort of Chancellor's police, rather than concentrating on knowing the Force, which is what you were touching on there. Yes, they were wise to refuse to rule, but unwise to simply accept the status quo. Short-sighted to lose touch with the living Force by spending so much of their time and energy on enforcing laws that could easily be left to civilian authorities. Immoral, to refuse to act against evils such as slavery. What were your thoughts on that? I, I know that he is biased just by the nature of her of his perspective. And and I will say I don't think that he's got everything necessarily right, but I think he also has some good points. What were what were your thoughts on that? There was another quote about the Jedi that I think it's from the old Clone Wars books, but it says the Jedi feel that it is their job to meddle in people's lives without ever asking if it's their right. And I think that's exactly what's going on is, you know, Qui-Gon's realizing, you know, the Jedi are meddling in people's lives on such a grand galactic scale. They're meddling in politics, but they're not stopping to ask, is this what we should be doing? I think that part of it is maybe... Do you, do you think that their power gets to their head where they, just because they can intervene and make a difference, for better or for worse, that that inherently gives them, gives them the right? It's a very tricky line to walk, and I don't know if I have an answer or not, but do, do you think that at this point, you know, before the Clone Wars and all that, do you think that the power has gotten to their heads in, in some way where they feel like it is their inherent right to kind of meddle in, in, I don't want to say meddling in every kind of affairs because I don't know how much of, of it is just them following orders or if it's them thinking that, yeah, this is our right to do this. What do you think? Well, the Jedi have this ability to read the Force that no one else in the galaxy has. You know, they can see things from a point of view that no one else can, so they think that this point of view gives them, like, 
the right, they, they know all the right answers because they have this special ability no one else does. Yeah, it's a, you know, and I think it maybe it's a, a case by case basis where, you know, different masters, different Jedi act in different ways knowing that they have this ability. You know, I, I'm not saying, I'm not here to say that every Jedi abuses their their power, but I, I think... This is true. We have very two, two very good examples here, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon, who aren't, you know, blinded by their knowledge of the Force to think that we know everything, we know what's right, everyone should just listen to us. Yeah, I think it. Yeah. <laughs> one of the themes of this book is have a conversation about it, you know, just, uh, <laughs> hear different perspectives instead of being grounded in your own, in your own stance. Um, and I feel like maybe the order as a whole could benefit from it. Qui-Gon certainly could as well. You know, he, I think I am, I am biased towards him in a way just, you know, he's been the central character of this book. I like him and his philosophy as a Jedi, but I know that he also is very stubborn and we're, and we're getting the brunt of that perspective here. You know, we are privy to his thoughts and you know, predominantly his thoughts about the order. I, I just want to see a debate show between him and Yoda, which we kind of got earlier in a ch in one of the earlier chapters. But uh, I don't think he's entirely right. But I think he definitely has some good insights into what he is witnessing the order become, and that he doesn't really want a part of it, knowing that not a part of the order. He doesn't want a part of the council, yeah. knowing <laughs> that. <laughs> you mentioned Yoda. There is something I'd put in my notes here about how. Yoda always seems to know more than everyone else, or at least more than he lets on. Mm. So, you know, maybe Yoda is able to read the Force in such a way that he knows that Qui-Gon wouldn't take a position on the Council, but the invitation alone would cause enough tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan that it's what their relationship needed. Oh my god. That almost sounds, that theory sounds almost too good to be true, but I want to buy into it because, like, I think that Yoda also knows what he's doing to a lot of extents. And my, my mind is, bl you've blown my mind, like, at least two times now in this episode. <laughs> You're welcome. But all along, it was what they needed, that offer the council, even though he knew it would never happen. Oh, my God. I'm buying into that completely. But we get this closing scene between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, um, you know, where... Qui-Gon finds Obi-Wan in the gardens, you know, and I wrote like master, like apprentice, you know, that's where Qui-Gon went to find peace earlier. And, you know, we can imagine that Obi-Wan knows that Qui-Gon had been, you know, meeting with the council and he's, you know, kind of waiting on his answer. And, you know, Qui-Gon tells him about his decision and, uh, you know, how he refused. Uh, and I just want to read their last interaction just for your thoughts on it, because um, this is the last interaction that we get between them in this book, I'm, I'm just going to just read it from the text, quote, Obi-Wan began to smile. You know, Master, I've realized I wouldn't learn nearly as much from someone who always agreed with me. Qui-Gon grinned back, and they clasped hands more truly partners than ever before. You know, it, it's a wholesome moment. It's what we like to see between them, especially to close up this book. What, what are your thoughts on reading that, especially after everything we've read between them up to this point, the journey that they've been on, the highs and the lows. What are your thoughts? All right, hold on one second. I'm close to having an emotion here. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, okay, it's gone. Push! 
like I said, now that these two are just so in sync with each other, now that they've got such a friendship and such a relationship going on, I really want to see more adventures between them. You know, yeah. now that they're not acting like a couple of passive aggressive roommates. <laughs> For sure. Like now that they are acting, you know, in sync, just, you know, together, it's only right that we just get some kind of story where we're not frustrated at them the whole time for just not talking it out we want to see you know more moments like this um they laid the groundwork for this whole mystery of qui-gon's lost love they gotta pay that off somewhere they have to like oh my god they, claudia if you ever listen to this please give us what we want do, just do it i'm uh, calling you out claudia give us the qui-gon relationship we need an expansion on obi-wan and satine when they first met and we need to find out what happened on Felucia. If we don't get that story at some point in whatever medium, I will be upset. <laughs> I will be upset. Uh, but the final scene of this chapter closes with Rail when he's woken by his comm link uh, in the night. And Dooku has returned his call. And Dooku offered Rail to join him on Sereno. And he says, quote, you will gain more understanding, more power than you can yet comprehend. If we stood together, we could be unconquerable. And I'm like, bro, you couldn't sound more Sith if you tried. And like, <laughs> just, did he think that Rail might, like that this might turn Rail away? He's being very upfront <laughs> about this. And then could you just imagine that line being delivered with... Christopher Lee's Count Dooku voice, we could be unstoppable. <laughs> Christopher Lee, is that you? It's better than my impression. I think I likened his voice to Snape's in an earlier episode, and <laughs> I just... Uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to try it for the patrons right now. You will Do gain we... more understanding, more power than you could possibly, <laughs> possibly imagine. <laughs> what am I doing? Oh, man. If we stood together, Potter, we could be uncomfortable. <laughs> and then, yeah, I loved Rail's line at the end of that conversation where, you know, he just, he quotes Qui-Gon back at him and yeah. then hangs up. We don't choose the light so that we can win. We choose the light because it is the light that's pretty much it that's pretty much it and it's pretty impactful and powerful to hear that coming from rail when dooku offers him him that choice and yeah like you said he quoted qui-gon there and and in the end it is nice to see that qui-gon made an impact on rail with that one line and, and that can make all the difference yeah it's nice to see that all the things qui-gon was trying to hammer into rail one of them finally got through it just gives him this moment of growth. I mean, he's still, you know, this sloppy, for lack of a better term, hobo Jedi, but he's actually kind of had this moment of emotional growth where he's realizing what the score is. Exactly. You know, and, and, and he is saying that he is going to go back to Coruscant to kind of see what they have in store for him and, uh, you know, kind of finding his path again, which takes us to the epilogue. And this hit me in the feels because we begin 
in the shrine right before Qui-Gon's cremation. So we're in the timeline of the Phantom Menace, and you know he's asking Queen Amidala to spend a few more moments with his master's body. And, and there's just something really sad about going on this journey with them through the book, knowing how it ends for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan as well, but knowing how it ends for them both. And was their journey all kind of sunshine and rainbows? Not at all. It wasn't easy. It was uncomfortable to read at many points. But we got the chance to see them grow together and kind of bring out the best in each other at different points in different ways. And we saw them steadily believe in each other. And for all of that to end like this, it hits hard. It hits hard. I know maybe you don't feel what I feel, but it hits hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, hold on. I need to suppress another emotion. <laughs> All right, there we go. <laughs> this is just the inherent problem with prequel stories like this. I mean, it's like when Rogue One came out, you knew none of those characters were going to make it out of that. Just knowing how it ends, it doesn't make it any easier, but then we kind of forget how it ends when we're in the middle of the book and reading about them just, you know, being master and apprentice. <sighs> but then they remind you of it at the end. Damn it, Claudia. <sighs> Why? <laughs> just, uh, it, it, it hits hard. And, and, and we see Obi-Wan wrestling with some survivor's guilt um, that we didn't really get the chance to see in the movies. Uh, he's thinking to himself, quote, the first Jedi killed by a Sith in a thousand years. That fate should never have fallen to anyone. But if it had to happen, why didn't it happen to me instead of you? And, and we see Obi-Wan wrestling with the will of the Force. You know, he knows he kind of has to believe that this is the way that it was supposed to be, but he, he admits to himself he can't reconcile himself with it, and we can't really blame him, can we? Well, it's like one of your previous guests mentioned how when people have a traumatic experience, like, you know, losing someone close, they tend to blame whatever higher power they believe controls fate, and mm. that's what Obi-Wan is doing. He's, you know, kind of blaming the force for you know this happening and this also would bring a uh, interesting what if story you know what if obi-wan had died and qui-gon had not and then qui-gon got to train anakin oof it's interesting to think about and you know and he and he's wrestling with that here it could have changed the game entirely but he's realizing he's he's looking out to the door and sees young anakin there and and he's thinking about how he took anakin on because that was his last promise to Qui-Gon, that he would train the boy. And he's thinking to himself, if Anakin was truly the chosen one, if Qui-Gon was correct about that, and he did go back to free all the slaves, that Qui-Gon's hopes would be fulfilled. And we see how much of his initial relationship with Anakin was built upon his memory and promise to Qui-Gon. And I'm just going to read this last bit here. Uh, I'm just going to read the the short end to the book here and and I can leave it to your thoughts. He's thinking, quote, I will train him, master, he said, bowing his head low until it almost touched Qui-Gon's still hand. I will do everything for him that you would have done. Qui-Gon had faith that Anakin Skywalker was the chosen one. Obi-Wan would have to find faith in it too. Looking at Qui-Gon's face for the last time, Obi-Wan whispered, I choose to believe. I got chills. Uh, I'm going to open the floor to you (laughs) while I cry steadily. All right. So as Andrew cries, I'm just going to say that, you know, this is a 
nice show of the relationship that Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn had in that Obi-Wan didn't have the same beliefs that Qui-Gon did, but his relationship with him was so strong, was such a defining factor of Obi-Wan's life that he had to do it for the sake of Qui-Gon's memory. Yeah, it was really the the only way. And he, he knew how much it meant to Qui-Gon, how much prophecies meant to Qui-Gon and Anakin is the heart of one of the biggest prophecies. And it's just, it was the only way it was going to happen, you know, for better or for worse. You know, we know how that ends too, but we see kind of the foundation of it here where it was initially at least. And I'm not saying that he and Anakin didn't end up having like their like their own qualities to their relationship as they grew together. But initially, it was really about trying to, to make good on his promise to, to Qui-Gon and to fulfill the dream that Qui-Gon had for a long time to, you know, one of which being to end slavery, to free slaves and, and to do good in the galaxy and, and how much of that initial relationship was built upon those bricks. And... I just, I think it's a powerful way to end the book. The choice to believe. You know, we saw earlier in, in the chapter, you know, Qui-Gon choosing to believe that good could happen, that peace could be achieved, that slavery could end. We saw Rahara choosing to believe in Pax, that he could get her out of the leverage, that he could free her. We, we have seen Pax choose to believe in Rahara throughout the book to bring out the best in him. The, the choice to believe, you know, it, it is in the end, like Qui-Gon said, memory in the end is always possessed. The choice to believe, I feel, is in the, in the end, like really all that we can do. And we see that end for Obi-Wan here. So, hey, I guess that's another theme for the book, your choices. Yeah, yeah they, they, they define us. It's what is it? It's not, it's not what you say. It's what you do that defines you. I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but... Keith, that is how the epilogue ends. That is how this book ends. That is how this episode ends. Listening through the book for you, when this season began, was your first kind of dive into Master and Apprentice. This was your first time through it. What were your thoughts looking back on the book when you reached this moment, when we've talked about it today? What are your closing thoughts on Master and Apprentice? I really loved the mystery that they had throughout the book, the whole intrigue plot of who who is trying to sabotage this, who's behind the Blackguard, who is you know trying to kill Fanry, all of this. But I mean, it's it's very well done. I will say though, I know everyone has been very supportive of Fanry. All your other guests have been very supportive of her, <laughs> but I never really trusted her from the beginning. I remember, I, I specifically, because I, you know, obviously I I have known how it ends. I've read the book before covering it on the show. So I knew like how it turned out for her. And I remember when you came on for the first episode, you were pointing out these small things that she was doing, how she was acting, you know, how she kind of like looked away nervously when they pointed out like, oh, they haven't been attacking Royal Aircraft. You know, what's going on there? You know, you, you have been pointing those things out in, in the beginning. And I couldn't say anything because this is a spoiler free show, but I was like, this man's has it. You, <laughs> I, I, mad respect for that. 
I because I did not see that coming. I did not. I mean, they ask if there has been any attempts on Fanry's life, and sure enough, the next thing that happens is an attempt on Fanry's life. It's like, oh, that would actually be real. That that should probably happen right about now. Uh, <laughs> good point, guys. I'm gonna make it happen. <laughs> it, it's like there's this thing from the book World War Z called the Tenth Man. If nine people in the room are saying one thing, it is the job of the tenth man to think something else. Does this make me paranoid? Yes. <laughs> Does it make it hard for me to trust people? Yes. Do I wish I had a third point? Yes. Did I suddenly realize this wasn't going anywhere? Yes. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> You're the tenth man, and you saw straight through Fannery when no one else did. I remember even one of my previous guests off-air this was his first time through the book as well, and he was convinced that it was Dooku behind it, just with all the flashbacks we were getting about Dooku, and he thought that it was connecting Dooku to the current plot, and it's just, it could have been anyone. I think you might be one of the few that I know who suspected Fannery from the start. It's just, I, I love that aspect of the story as well. It's kind of the mystery, the intrigue about that, and just all around, I, I know it is not a lot of people's favorite uh, book, um, I know for some people it is their favorite or, or up there a lot or up there pretty high. Um, I do think it's a very enjoyable story and I'm glad to have been able to have you on Keith today to to wrap it up. It's been a journey and I just can't thank you enough for coming on twice this season to talk about this book and especially to to close it up. Uh, thanks so much for making the time to, to wrap up our coverage of Master and Apprentice. Thank you for having me on here. Hopefully your listenership can uh, suffer the second hit to it after my... <laughs> I hate you! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks so much, man. This has been a journey, and I think it came to a close in a, in a great way. Yes, it was a very satisfying ending, and I am happy to have been here for the ending of it on your podcast. And before we close up today, I'd love to hear from you all about your thoughts on Master and Apprentice as we draw the season to a close. What were your favorite moments? What characters did you love? What didn't you like about the book and why? You all have heard my thoughts on the book for months now, but I'd like to turn the mic over to you and to share some of your thoughts and responses in next episode's intro. And I'll post about this on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook where you can reply with your takes or you can send your thoughts to OuterRimReadsPod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay engaged and up-to-date with the show, you can find Outer Rim Reads on Twitter at OuterRimReadPod and on Facebook and Instagram at OuterRimReadsPod. If you'd like to join our family on Patreon and support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And if you want to rep Outer Rim Reads merch, you can find us at outerrimreads.creator-spring.com. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, it is edited by Connor Floyd, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon Van Backum. We will be back in three weeks on Tuesday, June 8th, to begin the first of four inter-season break episodes. So until then, sit back and enjoy, and let's take a moment of silence for the passing of Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn, and I'll catch you all next time.